0: Fourth and four. How about this? I, I can't imagine that the Colts are going to snap this ball and attempt to run an offensive play. I mean, that would just be very foolish if they were going to try and go for that.
1: Snap the football. Luck fires. Low pass. And it's incomplete. I don't get it. It's unbelievable. I, I don't get it.
0: We're not playing to tie. I mean, we're going for that ten times out of ten. I mean, that's just the way it's got to roll. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it and you know Frank told us after the we had a discussion before the play and I agreed
1: (laughs) all right welcome back to the podcast it is the Connor pod as it's affectionately known what's up man I like
0: posterity let's stick with posterity for now
1: the posterity pod or just posterity (laughs) <laughs> i like it yeah, posterity we're talking football as always on this 2nd of october 2018. we're going to go ahead and just talk about the baseball postseason on today's podcast connor had okay. this idea and i just decided to roll with it connor what are your yeah. thoughts on the baseball postseason
0: yeah well i know the astros you know they, they're they looking really strong right now and everybody's really into the red Sox. but it, <laughs> you know i just i really really like the mariners chance this year <laughs>
1: Can you uh, can you gauge your level of affection for baseball since high school till now? Has it waned or waxed, or are you just more indifferent than ever?
0: I would say so I would say that it has grown by maybe I am no longer negatively indifferent toward baseball. I would say that I'm positively indifferent toward baseball..
1: Yeah. Um, we'll take what we can get.
0: We can talk about that more later.
1: Yes, we can. It is football season. There's plenty to talk about. We're going to get to Patrick Mahomes and his 4-0 and start with the Kansas City Chiefs throwing 14 touchdowns and no interceptions through four games of his second year. That's pretty impressive. But we want to start by talking about some more coaching decisions that have been brought into the spotlight the last couple of weeks because this was a topic that we started to touch on a couple of weeks ago when we last talked, bringing up Bill Belichick and Sean McVay and Not coaching from a place of fear, but coaching from a place of aggression, unapologetic aggression. Not reckless, but smart, strategic, and empowering, really. It it makes even us get fired up when we see it done correctly. Um, That being said, there are a couple of examples that have happened that I think are worth talking about because not every decision based in aggression it certainly doesn't always bear a successful result, but I can, I also think that you can still critique the process of coaching from a, from an aggressive mindset. I don't know if it's 100% always the right thing to do, uh, regardless of the result because Connor let's reiterate, right? We're talking about judging the, these coaching decisions and, and these things not based on the result, but based upon the process as best we can.
0: Yes. Yes, Definitely.
1: So one of these examples was from the NFL this past Sunday. The Indianapolis Colts and the Houston Texans in Indy. This game goes to overtime. High-flying game. Andrew Lux looks good. Deshaun Watson looks good. Goes to OT. It's a 31-31 game. Teams exchange field goals. And here we go. Final minute of overtime. Indianapolis has the ball. Ball game tied at 34. Final minute of the OT. So you're you know 36 seconds away from a tie. A tie game. A third tie game. Unbelievable. Third and 21 at your own 26-yard line, and you pick up 17 yards. I think that's important context because almost when you gain that many yards on a third and long, it almost gives you a sense of momentum or something. Momentum, yeah, to pick up a fourth and short. Whether or not that's accurate, I think, can be debated. But anyway, it does set up a fourth and four for Indianapolis at their own own 43-yard line. With twenty-seven seconds left to go in the game, they decide to go for it. Okay, at this point, are they right to are they right to go for it? Is this a process we can get behind for head coach Frank Reich in his first year for Indianapolis, being this aggressive, knowing that if you turn the ball over here in a dome stadium, all Houston needs is another ten yards, 10 yards for yeah. a fifty-three-yard field goal or yeah. a fifty-seven-yard field goal. What do you think?
0: Um. So so for this, you need to weigh, I think, three factors. The first factor is you need to weigh the, um, you know, the end result of winning versus the end result of tying versus the end result of losing and how potentially beneficial those three things are. So, uh, you know, a win is very beneficial. A tie actually still has a benefit for you as a team. And the loss is obviously not beneficial at all. Uh, the second thing you need to weigh is the potency of your offense. I looked it up right before we opened this up. The Colts, for the entirety of the game, so including this last play, averaged 5.75 yards per play. Um, that's including all negative plays and all positive plays. And Of course, there's a wide variance in yardage per play on a play-by-play basis, but you average that out uh, and they've they got 5.75 yards per play. And then I think the third thing is you have to take into account um, what <laughs> whether or not you have an actual belief in your team and their ability to execute. So sometimes you're playing against um, a team that you believe is superior to you and so you want to take out um, the potential for the game to go longer than necessary because you think that team might be better than you and the longer games go, the better team usually um, increases their potential edge overall. So with those three criteria set out for this, um, I, I actually technically don't like the decision, uh, just from a process standpoint. From a personal standpoint, I love the decision because I like aggressive coaches, I like the aggressive play call, and I like... The willingness to say I'm okay losing so long as I'm the I'm the aggressor in this scenario, but your um, a tie uh, actually does not hurt you as much as the loss does hurt you, and so because of that, I think you should have in this scenario punted the ball and forced the force the Texans to go full the length of the field.
1: I also. I'm not positive on this. I think NFL teams get two timeouts in overtime.
0: I'm pretty sure that's right.
1: Does that sound accurate to you?
0: That does yeah.
1: okay. So looking back at um, where Indianapolis was, they had they took their first time out of the overtime before that play. so they if they had converted, they would have still had one timeout remaining and for themselves to try to get another 20 yards in the next. 24 seconds for a long Vinatieri field goal. And it's Vinatieri, so, you know, if you're an old guy, he still has that range and he certainly has the clutch factor. So it's not out of the question that they could get a winning field goal off, but, man, it's not like you're going for it at even the plus 45 or anywhere in, in moderate plus territory. You're still in your own territory, so the risk, you're right, is still there. How much do you think the, um, the way coaches see tying just from a competitive nature standpoint the perception around tying rather than just outright losing the game how much of a factor do you think that plays in the the coach's mind in this case frank reich
0: i think i think it plays a huge role i think specifically ironically because we've already had two ties and we've essentially already had these kinds of conversations about well why do we have why do we even have a tie blah 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 all those things, I think that plays a huge role in terms of galvanizing coaches to be a little bit more aggressive during overtime. Um, and so it kind of pushed whether or not – my guess is that I don't know how aggressive Reich has been in his career as a coach up to now. But I'm guessing it made him a little bit more aggressive than he usually is because he didn't want to be that coach who – had the opportunity to go do something that looked good and, you know, punted the ball away instead, quite literally.
1: Well, you know, he comes from Doug Peterson's staff, and Doug Peterson was an aggressive coach last year. Yeah. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. You're not sure where the origin of that confidence of aggression comes from, yeah. <laughs> which was a pretty funny uh, thing to think about, whether he kind of ran in <laughs> blindly to that aggression or if there it comes from a rational place. Right. But that being said, I'm sure that kind of fed off of Frank Reich, you know, as he goes about oh, trying yeah. to establish a mentality. And you got to think, like, he is still trying to establish a culture here. And yeah. that is certainly done in meeting rooms and on the practice fields, but it's also done in the trenches of an overtime game. Like, for sure. Even though they lost this game, we know Indianapolis isn't a playoff team. And he, I wonder if he knows that in the back of his mind as well, or if he won't even admit that yet. But that being said, Maybe he takes the losing side of these games. I don't know, with a little bit less gravity, as opposed to if his team was going to contend for a South title. Yeah,
0: I think I think one of the things that plays a role um, is the idea that this decision shows that the coach is not afraid to lose. You know, he would rather go for the throat and go for a win than not being afraid to lose. And that's a very cliche thing to say, but you do see a lot of coaches make decisions that. Show that they are afraid to lose, and a lot of times you end up losing because of that decision making process. I mean, you talk about how many games did we watch where a defense starts playing prevent and then gives up 10 yards, 10 yards, 10 yards, 10 yards, 35 yards, touchdown.
1: Yep, yeah, it happens uh way too often, especially in yeah. this day and age. All
0: yeah. right,
1: um, pivoting to the college side of things, a couple weeks ago, the Oregon Ducks and Stanford Cardinal played in Eugene, and Oregon. Was on top twenty-four to seven at halftime. Yeah. They were inches away from going up thirty-one to seven when wide receiver Jalen Red on an end around ran to the corner of the end zone, but his foot hit the pylon with the ball at about the three quarter yard line. And apparently in college, I didn't even know this, but in college, if you contact the pylon, you're out of bounds. In wow. the NFL, that's not the case. That's still yeah. in play. And And so he went into the end zone. Ball crosses the plane. It's ruled on the field a touchdown. (laughs) They review it, see the foot hit the pylon with the ball at the three-quarter yard line, and say, nope, that's technically out of bounds. I had no idea. Next play, snap goes over Justin Herbert, the quarterback's head, and is picked up in return for a touchdown by Stanford. That's
0: a a shotgun snap, right?
1: Correct. (laughs) Yes, from the half-yard line. You are correct. Okay. That's one of the things that has driven the fan base crazy lately is the lack of under center goal line packages that this program has had, including this year. Anywho, uh, mm. it gets returned for a touchdown. And just like that, a 31-7 to lead in the third quarter becomes a 24-14 to game. Oregon goes three and out. Stanford scores. 24-21 third quarter. <laughs> it ultimately goes to overtime, and Oregon loses the last minute Of regulation, Oregon has the football in plus territory with a three-point lead with Stanford only having two timeouts left. Second and two at like the 42 of Stanford, I want to say. Second and two. At this point, not a single person watching the game live is saying, Neil, because you can't run out the clock yet. Stanford could... You know, you could take it down to about 15 seconds, 14 seconds, if you snapped it with one on the play clock and had Stanford use all their timeouts. So Oregon lines up to run the football. They run a play over the left side, over the left, uh, between left guard and left tackle. Redshirt freshman running back. Gets enough yardage for the first down, but fumbles the football. He did not even extend the football out from his body. He just held it a little loose, I guess, because a Stanford (laughs) backup safety, by the way, a backup safety, came in and punched the ball out, and it was recovered by one of their starting linebackers. Wow. All right, so that was the result of the play. But let's go back to the play itself and the process of deciding they already picked up eight yards on first down, for Pete's sake. And then they ran yep. it over the left side on second and two. The alternative would have been just kneeling the ball and then punting away to Stanford deep in their own territory with no timeouts with about ten seconds left on the clock by the time it was all set and done. Mm-hmm. But you still have to execute the punt. And in college football, sometimes that's been problematic. You're you're
0: totally right about that one. <laughs> I was actually just thinking about that. Speaking I, of Michigan I State Victory. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, go ahead. What do you think?
0: Well, I think this is the right call, and I think this is the right call for a couple different reasons. One, yes, the guy fumbled, and so this is a post-facto. Well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? If the guy gets the first down like he did, doesn't fumble the game's over, no one even thinks for a second about this. Nobody goes back and looks at this second down play and says, well, hey, they should have actually uh, kneeled twice and then punted the ball and gave Stanford 10 seconds from their, you know, 15 yard line right there isn't a single person who would be doing that um they're they're only doing this because they're looking at the result of what occurred rather than the actual process the actual process is they did the play that they probably started their spring football training with they ran that and they've ran that you know i would say probably about 3500 times by now just in practice and you know however many times they've ran it in the game The chances of a running back fumbling the ball on a regular average every time running play are extremely low. Um, You've already had a problematic uh, quarterback to center exchange, so you're not even sure if the exchange on any sort of kneel is going to actually work. Um, Obviously, the exchange is a little bit safer than the run, but you're doubling the potential odds of the exchange not working by kneeling twice, and then you're doubling it again, at least, if not more, by then thinking that you can do a long snap instead of a regular shotgun snap. And then you're also thinking that your punter's not going to screw up somehow by either dropping the ball or shanking the ball backwards or doing something really stupid. So I think in this particular scenario, it's actually pretty clear. Yes, the guy fumbled the ball. The odds of a running back fumbling the ball on an average running player are actually very low um you're upset that he fumbles the ball but you move on and you understand that your process is still fine in this in this particular scenario
1: oh man i wish that would be more clear to more people it's frustrating to see the post facto critique of head coach mario cristobal in his very first pac-12 game by the way that should have upset a top 10 team at home and look there are other mistakes that oregon made to put themselves in that position and they It only went to overtime after that, anyway. They could have won it in OT, too. But that really, that moment kind of crystallizes the collapse. And so it's easy to talk about in those kind of post facto terms. But whenever anything is convenient from a narrative standpoint or a critique standpoint, uh, I immediately will view it with skepticism.
0: Yep. Yeah. And I that's think that's the, a that's good the, default, right? That is the deconstructionist mindset. I'm <laughs> hey, so happy hey, to hey. that. I'm
1: learning something. Let's, yes. let's go. <laughs> you know how guys get fired up on the practice field for making big hits. I get fired up in the studio and yes. I finally have yeah. uncovered some truth. Come on, baby. <laughs> Put that on film. I love it. For posterity. I love it. All right, well, let's use that momentum to uh, transition to topic B, which is my dude, Patrick Mahomes. He's in his second season. He got to sit all but one game last year Mm. under Alex Smith, who started for the Chiefs, and um, they should have won a wild card game at the very least, but ended up losing at home to Tennessee. Yeah. So Mahomes has a full season to sit and look at the offensive system under Andy Reid and at that time, Matt Nagy. So he is starting now for the first time for a full season and he's off to a historic pace. I mentioned in the open 14 touchdowns, no interceptions. The most recent performance was his most clutch performance, despite being his least productive. Mm -hmm. A 27, 23 comeback win on Monday night football over the Denver Broncos in which Kansas city trailed by 10 in the fourth quarter. Um, you know, that so much is being made of this guy because of the numbers he's putting up and now the clutch factor that he showed, because in the first three games, let's be honest, he didn't really have to show a quote unquote clutch factor with, right. with, with a close game of the fourth quarter. He did so yesterday. The left handed pass, <laughs> the throwing, you know, across his body, everybody and their grandma making Brett Favre comparisons. Um and it's so pleasant and fun to watch, but You know, and you can take this where you will, Connor, but the one thing I got to point out is if he was in a different system, if he was in a different scenario, we would not be seeing this. I mean, I'm looking at Russell Wilson and the way he's just being suffocated by Brian Schottenheimer, and he has identical stats that DeVars Jackson had in 2011. But Russell's making twenty million a year. And I'm just I wanna cry seeing that and thinking about what Russell could do in Andy Reid's system. Mm-hmm. He could certainly do, I think, what Mahomes is doing, not to take anything away from Mahomes, but the the quarterback talent and the play caller in the system, they're always connected. They're always married. And I don't want that to be lost, even though Mahomes certainly is a supremely talented young quarterback.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've so um off the off the bat, I think what's been most impressive to me about Mahomes as a second year guy is the decision making has been outstanding. Um, even the left handed throw was actually a relatively safe play because there wasn't any real defense around that in terms of where the ball was traveling to. Um, he hasn't thrown an interception. Nor, I haven't checked um, the stats from last night, but he, nor had he thrown an interceptable pass. So, you know, I mean, you can throw passes that go through a defenders' hands or you can throw passes that get tipped and then are, are picked or maybe picked, those kinds of things. He hasn't even thrown something like that yet. And to me, that really says a lot about his decision-making. Um, with that said, I think a lot of that has been due to what Andy Reid has done, and the personnel that he has, and the ease and with which you know he's throwing to a lot of open receivers, but when he has to, he has been able to really put the ball into places where I don't think that even that many guys in the league right now have the potential to put the ball in that in those places. And I'll, my best example right now, well, the two are there was a third and seventeen or a third and sixteen. Um, where I think it was the fourth quarter. Yeah, it was the fourth quarter where he threw the ball to Tyreek Hill across the middle of the field for like 16 and a half yards. They go for it on fourth and one and they get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that throw was low and away from the defense and right to Hill. Um, it was a great throw. And it was a throw that you can tell that he put the ball there on purpose, not by accident. And then the other one that I, I can remember off the top of my head, I haven't watched every single game he's played, But in terms of ball location is they're playing the Steelers. I want to say this was week two. Yeah, week two. They're playing the Steelers and uh, Kelsey's running a seam route and he throws a dart to Kelsey, but he throws the dart back shoulder. And by doing that, he's turning Kelsey away from the safety and making sure that the safety coming from the middle of the field doesn't even have a chance while at the same time, throwing Kelsey up to the field enough to make sure that he'll be falling into the end zone um, and keeping him safe. Um, that, that particular throw he threw with zero pressure around him. So it was, a, it was an easier throw than an under-pressure throw. But still, it's that kind of ball location that I've found like really, really impressive, specifically for, coming from someone who I wasn't honestly that impressed with at Texas Tech.
1: Yeah, because that's part of it. The perception around quarterbacks that come out of Texas Tech is, you know, with that air raid system, it doesn't really translate very well to an NFL skill set. Yeah. And Mahomes, from what I'm reading, has been showing things that were, frankly, just hard to um, hard to see that he had those skills when he was in college because yeah. the, that college scheme didn't demand that he had them. Yeah, Or yeah. even if he did have them, you, you couldn't tell because yeah. the scheme wouldn't really reveal it. Yep. yep.
0: Um, and this this actually,
1: I think this is goes to
0: a really interesting thing about a coach's ability or a GM's ability to really understand what they have in their personnel because the Chiefs offloaded Alex Smith, who is a, a, a very um, moderately capable, um, a competent quarterback. Someone who would get the job done and make sure that he wasn't putting you in positions where you would lose all that frequently, if at all. Mm-hmm. But they they have a significant upgrade in terms of upside potential. And currently at least, the floor in terms of negative potential is still about Alex Smith's floor. I mean, I just spoke about how Mahomes hasn't thrown an interceptable pass yet, Mm -hmm. and he's four games into the season. He's a quarter of the way into the season, and the defense hasn't even had an opportunity
1: to intercept the ball from him, let alone actually done so. See, and that was the calling card of Alex Smith, like you just said, and the fact that Andy Reid, whether or not he knew it or not, he must have had a hunch that Mahomes would still be able to take good enough care of the ball that... It wouldn't have been that much of a difference between Smith and Mahomes in terms of uh, lack of turnovers. That's certainly been the case so far. That being said, we know how narratives work. We yep. know how much you know the media loves to get behind the next young superstar. Um, and at some point there's there's going to be regression. Only because he's on some crazy historic pace, and he's going to yeah. regress from historic to superstar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like, but when that regression happens, the narrative will focus on that regression, and the headlines will be on that regression, and you know the perception will will fall dramatically. My my question just is, you know, what are the fair expectations for this guy? Just let's start with this season. I mean, we know that. They don't have a great defense, so they're going to have to rely on their offense. Um, We know that it's probably going to be tougher to put up the same numbers that he's been putting up based on defense's familiarity with what you put on tape. Um, And as the weather, frankly, gets colder, it's harder to throw the ball. I mean, that's a real thing, Um, especially more down the field. So, you know, what, what what are the fair expectations with this offense and especially with Mahomes the rest of the year?
0: I think the fair, I, I think your point is really valid. My 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 personal kind of litmus slash you know sample sizes, I think you need at least 10 games. Um you need the rest of the NFL to get about 10 games worth of film on a guy before you really understand you really know whether or not they're going to figure him out or not. Um so like Deshaun Watson's getting really close to that 10 game sample size where we're going to know if he's legit going to be producing big numbers and be one of those high high caliber quarterbacks starting, you know, as the rest of this season goes on because they have enough film on him and he now has enough film on them to know, you know, can he continue to adapt and evolve and overcome or is he just, you know, uh, the next David Archer kind of thing. I think the same mm-hmm. thing with Mahomes. Um which is why I kind of highlighted his decision making because decision making shouldn't be something that just goes by the wayside. Right. Uh, to your point, though, you know maybe some of the deep balls that he's thrown that have been pitch uh, pitcher perfect, you know, get slightly underthrown and are picked, or or what have you. And so I think I think the fair, I think the fair expectation is the Chiefs win their division. I think that's fair. Um, I think this offense stays pretty high flying still, actually, because they just have so many weapons that unless there's injuries to the offensive line or unless there's injuries to one of their key players, uh, specifically Hill or Kelsey, um, or even Kareem Hunt, um, who's a uh, who's a very dynamic piece for them, both in the run game and the pass game, um, then I, I think they'll they'll be able to win the AFC West and at least win a playoff game. I, I would I would say that they should be pretty disappointed if those those two things don't occur.
1: The beauty of what you just said is the expectation around Mahomes and the Chiefs is a team-win-loss record, basically. Because, you know, honestly, it is a team game. Even though the quarterback position is individual, so much of his performance, you know, dictates how the team does. We've seen that certainly so far. You know, if you can... If you can perform well against that Denver pass rush in Denver, yeah, you know that really says something. And I think yeah. Reed gets a lot of credit because my gosh, did they get the ball out quickly on a yeah. lot of this stuff? I mean, and just you have no chance, yeah, as an edge rusher. Particularly yeah. this yeah. this weekend, they get to host Jacksonville.
0: That's going to be a really great game to watch. The following
1: weekend, they get to go to New England. And that's going to be another really good one. So, oh man, we're going to get some. I mean, those those are you know those
0: are AFC conference championship potential matchups right there too. Are they ever?
1: And you know, even the following week, this is a different category, but I've liked what I've seen from Cincinnati so far, and they host Cincinnati October twenty first after this mm-hmm. Jacksonville and New England game. So, mm-hmm. and then Denver again after that. So you know, we're going to see some things. Not to mention November nineteenth in Mexico City.
0: Against the Rams.
1: Against the Rams on Monday Night Football. So
0: Yeah.
1: uh, Yeah, anything else on that Mahomes conversation? I mean, I think we're going to obviously be talking about him some more as the season unfolds. I think that's safe to say. I did read a Dominic Foxworth piece today, and to your point about the decision-making, that really is, I mean, all the physical attributes and talent aside, that decision-making, that's a skill that will translate for his entire career if he can keep that up. And that yeah. is so unique in a young player. Um, and not just that he's making the right decisions, but he's making the right decisions. He's making the one right decision out of a six different possible decisions to make, whereas yeah. a lot of young QBs will only be given two decisions or three decisions. Or like a guy like Trubisky, who has got a guy wide open of the middle of the field, but he can't yeah. get there because he, he only has the ability to go through two reads. Right. Um, and Mahomes isn't like that. Like he's got the ability to see it all unfold. And I think part that's got to be the coaching staff gets some props on that, too, for putting yeah, him in the I, right, you know position to make those right decisions totally, totally. That's that
0: I mean, that's what I was going to say is I think I think Mahomes deserves a little bit of credit for that right now, maybe a lot. I don't know. I really don't know, but my mm-hmm. my personal instinct and guess is I'd be giving a lot more credit to. Mahome's success right now to Andy Reid, the play calling, the execution by the rest of the guys, and then you know, just the outstanding talent that he's surrounded by, really. I mean he's been putting the ball in the right place. but it's also pretty easy to throw, you know a screen pass, that's a six yard screen pass to Travis Kelsey and then he runs for fifteen yards in a first down. and then you go up tempo and you get a six yard end around to Kareem Hunt, and then you go up tempo again and you do a play fake rollout and then throw mm. the ball backside you know, deep post to Tyreek Hill,
1: who's just the fastest human on the planet currently. All right, last uh, little thing for this episode. I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Earl Thomas and uh, what happened with him in the Seahawks on Uh, Sunday.
0: See, I want to hear what you think about this because you're a big Seahawks fan.
1: I am a huge Seahawk fan, and I'll be honest. My passion reached peak level during college. Like every play I was emoting verbally somehow. back then and then Super Bowl 49 happened and my will was broken and uh, I decided I hated football and I, wa- I walked away from the game forever <laughs> no until next I didn't but I really like in retrospect I really have not rooted with the same intensity since that moment it, it did something to me <laughs> right. you as, get, it
0: did, you, as it did to that team
1: it, as it did to that team I don't think that's an accident um, you know so first of all just for context I don't necessarily believe in curses, but in that stadium now, Seattle lost Super Bowl forty-nine. It Last year on a Thursday night football, it was the last play in the career of Cam Chancellor. That's where he got hurt. It was the last play in the Seahawks career of Richard Sherman. Richard Sherman got hurt on that same game, in that same building. Yeah. And yeah. he ended his Seahawks career, and now it's the same place where Earl Thomas um, ends his Seahawks sure. career. Because, yeah. let's be clear, I do think it's the end of the season for Earl, even though hypothetically he could be healthy for a quote-unquote playoff run this team's not going to the playoffs so that's fine and he sure as hell is not going to be re-signed in the offseason um I love Earl Thomas to death and I really honestly didn't have an issue with the flip-off um you know we've seen Marshawn Lynch actually flipped off the Seahawks sideline again in that building on a Sunday night game a few years ago when they Called a passing play, in the kind of the behind the huddle camera shown Marshawn lining up behind quarterback and giving the bird to, to Daryl oh, Bevel. Funny. it's amazing, man. But that's part of the culture that you know Pete Carroll uh, empowers players being themselves, expressing themselves, yada yada yeah. yada. And even Pete Carroll, in his interview with local radio in Seattle yesterday, said, "You got to cut Earl Thomas some slack." For those that are just looking at the reaction from the outside in without the full context. Cut him some slack. That's Pete Carroll saying that. Who one could argue Earl Thomas was giving the the yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. the bird to Pete. So if Pete's right. saying that, then of course I can cut Earl Thomas some slack. Um, you know, this speaks to a larger conversation though about players. You know, well,
0: hold on. Let's also let's also talk about the fact that you know, let's say instead of flipping people off, some mics caught Earl MFing and you know cursing up a storm for like three minutes. The wow. dude broke his leg. Wow. Like your your ability to have self-control and professionalism, I think, and our our sympathy and willingness to believe that he 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 doesn't need to have professionalism when he has a broken leg in those, you know, in like most important moments. Like he, his earning power as as a human body for what he does just was significantly degraded. Um, and he knew that, and while that was going on in his head, he was also experiencing, I'm guessing significant, significant pain. And so when those two things converge, you almost always don't usually have self control.
1: I think we could both think of moments where we didn't exercise self control with only, um, you know, partial amounts of the pain proportional to what he was feeling. I mean,
0: I've jammed my finger and I've flipped off whatever I jammed my finger on and that was an inanimate, inanimate object.
1: Well, what were you thinking, man? I mean, didn't you realize children were around? Millions of people were watching you at that moment. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really good point. And Pete Carroll said as much. He said, I honestly think Earl Thomas showed an extraordinary amount of poise in that situation. Um, you know, Because probably what you thought. we, And even on the Seahawks sideline, we've seen guys like Doug Baldwin and Richard Sherman go on rants, visible rants. You yeah. know, for whatever reason, Lord knows what. Um, and, yeah. it, you know, we just, y- unless you're there, you just don't know the situation. But it makes for, you know, great talking points, that's for sure. Um, that being said, I feel terrible <laughs> about it. And I might be the only one that wasn't in the camp with both feet of pay Earl Thomas. Um, even though he's a generational player you know, turning 30 years old, be, more or less because of the direction that the franchise is going, mm-hmm. I could see why Seattle's front office was not giving him a new contract. Yep. Everybody else around me was was saying, pay the man, pay the man, pay the man. Okay, hold on. How convenient is that? Yeah. A, it's a great line. It's the convenient line. But my point is, when John Schneider and Pete Carroll signed Earl Thomas to a four-year, $40 million contract, you know, three years ago, that's a win for them, yeah. why, what kind of incentive did would John Schneider have to just sacrifice his hard work to sign get Earl to sign that deal four years ago? He'd be cutting himself off at the knees by just yeah. nullifying the last year of that because Earl Thomas wants to hold out and get money, yeah, I mean, we it's. E- I know it's weird because we feel like players are marginalized or treated unfairly because of the lack of guaranteed money in the NFL. But what about the empathy for the hard work executives go to, to get these deals locked up in the first place? I that's know. That's a weird line. I know. I'm just going to say it. That's a weird line. I, it sounded weird when I said it. <laughs> it sounded weird when I said it. And I totally understand, you know, they're not putting their bodies through anything or themselves through harm. But I'm just saying, if you work really, really hard to accomplish something, why three years later would you sacrifice that accomplishment just because of pressure? Yeah. Especially if it wasn't the thing to do for the health of your franchise going forward. The answer is you wouldn't. Right. What do you think about that?
0: I, so it's interesting because I, I agree. And I think, I, I, I think there are two things. I think there's one thing you didn't bring up. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing that you didn't bring up was, the, what they were paying him and what their understanding of his potential value was was not necessarily commensurate with what they were paying him. Um, and so what I mean by that is, as as a GM slash as um, a football organization, if you can pay Earl Thomas four years, 40 million bucks, um, when he's a 26-year-old or a 27-year-old, you do that 10 times out of 10, and no one blinks an eye at that. And in fact, you know, I, I would honestly say that Um, Earl Thomas and Earl Thomas's agent did a bad job Um, so I agree with your your statements from the Seahawks side of things and I also agree that there's no real need for the Seahawks to do any sort of negotiating until Earl served out his contract unless they can find what they believe to be an equitable term to agree to for an extension um, which my guess was that they wouldn't and couldn't because Earl wanted to be, you know, essentially setting the market for safeties. And everybody knows well, not everybody, maybe Earl doesn't, and a few other people. I, you know, I, I don't think Earl Thomas is anywhere near the peak of his playing career anymore. I think he's on the, the backside of his playing career. So, with all those things said, you know, as a, as a GM, you just don't want to be putting, you know, good money after bad in terms of paying someone more money for things that they've done in the past rather than what they could potentially do in the future. With that said, um what they could have done is they could have traded him for picks or another player that had commensurate value with him. Um and it sounded like their asking price for him was too high compared to the actual value that they were paying him for. And so With regard to that, if he is as valuable as they're asking for, they should be paying him that much in my mind, or they should be doing what they eventually did. And, you know, bad luck happened to all parties involved.
1: Bad luck certainly did happen. I think the trade um, argument is probably the most valid one. Because in the NFL, or how about this, you know, just let's take the emotion out of it because it's a tragic Moment from a from a contextual standpoint, it's tragic for Earl. It's tragic for the Seahawks in that football context. Um, but if you take the emotion out of it, take the sadness element out of it, this is going to sound brutal. But Good. the Seahawks lucked out here because financially, you know, aside from paying him this year, they didn't invest in a, they didn't give him that big contract. Yeah. What if they would have given him that big contract and now he got hurt? Yeah. It'd be screwed. Yeah. Now, but the trade element is worthy because they could have still traded him and then he probably wouldn't have gotten injured if he would be playing for another team at this point in the season right now either.
0: Or he could have. Or he could could have. have. Or he could have. Yeah. The Seahawks have cut bait. They've. I don't know how the cap hit works, but they probably don't have to pay as much of his $10 million cap hit this year, which means let's say they are somehow making a playoff run and they need to pick up a, a decent free agent. Last second, they have room to do that, or they could be making trades, or you know they're going to be able to gear up for free agency and be signing bigger
1: names and retooling their offensive line or something. And t- <laughs> with the trajectory of the franchise being as it is, that's probably f- for the better. Yeah. That's just the brutality of it. That to me, that to me
0: was where I lost, where I lost um, kind of the track with the Seahawks organization was. I, it, I I haven't been watching the Seahawks that much this year. Slash, I don't know how well <laughs> Earl Thomas was performing, but when mm-hmm. you have a guy who my my personal guess is was not hundred percent locked in every play, the way that Earl Thomas used to be, and what, the way that Earl Thomas, you can only be that small as a safety slash that small as a player in the NFL and get away with playing in that game. If you're a hundred percent locked in every single game. Yeah. And I mean, Will Thomas specifically was, he was the quarterback of probably a generally, a generationally great defense.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so for, for you to not have someone like that bought into your defense, you're losing a lot of potential upside just in terms of a leader buying in. Mm-hmm versus you know getting what a second round pick and a little bit more cap space and also maybe bringing in another safety who you're grooming to replace Mm -hmm, him
1: yep i would push back on that a little bit having just watched so much is he may have lost a, a step in terms of straightaway speed um no question, and the speed element is really what allows that defense to function with him in the center field there. Right. Um, right. No question about it, and cleaning up stuff in the run game faster than any safety normally could. Um, But, look, he intentionally skipped practices many times, skipped all of training camp because he didn't want to put himself in a vulnerable physical position, but he did show up to play. He had three interceptions through three games, so and he okay. and, and, and make an extraordinary play. So he's still producing from that side, um, at a pretty high level at twenty nine years old. But he you know, it's it's I think it'd be tough to assume that he would be able to do that not only the rest of this season, but certainly in an age thirty and age thirty one seasons. Right. Which is, you know, what he's looking for with the next contract. So right. Right. It, it's just a complicated, nuanced and unfortunately sad uh result. But certainly one that's that's got stuff that is worth um talking about and
0: and uh, well the other things that we haven't really touched on which are slightly oblique to this particular conversation is what has happened with the nba and 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 their contracts and also the differences in contracts between mlb nba and nfl um (laughs) and uh, so two things to touch on real quick is the nba only has 15 roster spots the nfl has 53 roster spots exactly um which means that per player, the cap hit is going to be significantly higher just to be on an NBA roster. Uh, And the second thing is all the money is guaranteed in MLB and NBA contracts. And in the NFL, it's not. Um, And there's a reason for that, and it's because the owners understand how violent this game is, and they understand that the shelf life of most players is less than three years, and so they don't want to be paying players who are no longer going to be able to play for them for more than what their contract or what they're able to play for um and is that fair to the players probably not but that's how this business is being ran currently and so you have to live with the current uh situation and not the ideal situation
1: it's a good place to stop right there connor hey man that was a lot of fun as always um you know we got to bring back the final thoughts segment as well where we just go we just talk life for the last little nugget i don't know if we have time today but uh you know that's something to file away for the next episode too, because those Definitely. are that's real that's where the truth real really comes <laughs> kind from. Of but uh,
0: I think I liked your I liked that you finally have taken the step toward if this narrative is convenient, then I need to be skeptical. That's my final thought.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna dwell on that. Put it up on the bulletin board there and use that as motivation for the next podcast. Appreciate the time, Connor.
0: yep.